All right, well, good morning, everyone. It's time to get started. So we're going to sing I Belong to the King this morning. It's hymn 163 if you want to look in a hymnal. But I'm sure we'll have the words on the screen. I belong to the King. And then we'll take up our morning offering. I belong to the King. I'm a child of His love. I shall dwell in His palace so fair. For He tells of its bliss in yon heaven above. And His children its splendor shall share. I belong to the King. I'm a child of His love. And He never And he loves me, I know, for his mercy and kindness so free. Are unceasingly mine, wheresoever I go, and my refuge unfailing is he. I belong to the king, I'm a child of his love, and he never his home. He will call me someday to his palace above. I shall dwell by his glorified throne. Last verse. I belong to the King and his promise is sure that we all shall be gathered at last. In his kingdom life with its trials is past. I belong to the King, I'm a child of His love, and He never forsaketh His own. He will call me someday to His palace above. I shall dwell by His Amen. Well, let's remain standing for prayer. We do want to welcome our guests here this morning. We've got Brother Joe Tins with us that uh, pastored this church back in the day when I was a young man. As a matter of fact, he led me to the Lord. And uh, uh, what a great day that was. Great day that was. And it stuck. That's been a long, long time ago. You know, I'm still saved. <laughs> Didn't have to do it again even yet. It's good to be in the Lord's house. Let's go to him in prayer, and then we'll receive our morning offering. Brother Jody, would you order a prayer, please? Amen. Thank you. Be seated.
All righty, thank you for that, Miss Martha. I appreciate it. Good morning, folks. One guy says good morning. What a sorry lot. <laughs> so listen, we'll get the uh, we'll get the morning started off here on a on a little bit of a humorous note. All right, this was a uh, this was a little story a friend of mine sent over to me about two or three days ago, and uh, it naturally reminds me of trials that we have in our lives, things that come up in our lives that maybe we're not so sure about in this sort of thing. How many of y'all have that stuff? I've got that. Everybody has that, right? If, you're, if, you, if you don't have that, something is probably wrong, you know, if God is not doing something to you. So here's a little story here. This is kind of humorous. A pastor asked an older Texas farmer decked out in bib overalls to say grace for the morning breakfast. Lord, I hate buttermilk, the farmer began. The visiting pastor opened one eye to glance at the farmer and wonder where this was going. The farmer loudly proclaimed, Lord, I hate lard. Now the pastor was growing concerned. Without missing a beat, the farmer continued, and Lord, you know that I don't much care for white flour. The pastor once again opened an eye to glance around the room and saw that he wasn't the only one feeling a little uncomfortable. Then the farmer added this, but Lord, when you mix them all together and bake them, I do love warm, fresh biscuits. So Lord, when things come up that we don't like, when life gets hard, when we don't understand what you're saying to us, help us to just relax and wait until you're done mixing. It'll probably be even better than the biscuits. Amen. You know, so God mixes us up, doesn't he? he? He stirs us. He puts all these different things into our life. And then you go down that path and you wonder, what in the world is he doing here? His ways are higher than our ways, so we can't know the answer to that question. But there's always an outcome to these things that is in our best interest because that's what God is all about here. Amen. I know some people in this room. I know some of the trials people in this room. I know my own trials. And boy, I'm waiting for the mixing to get done and the baking to start. <laughs> you know, where we can really get to an idea about what God is, uh, what God is trying to do with us here. So, Anyways, last week we finished up at the, uh, we were talking about the different crowns that we have. And today what we're going to start off with here is we're going to start off with the marriage supper of the Lamb. So as I finished up last week, we, we had just read uh, uh, Romans 14, 10 through 12. But why dost thou judge thy brethren, or why dost thou set at naught thy brother? For we all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, as I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then every one of us shall give an account of himself to God. And we kind of talked about this whole issue of pointing fingers at other people and comparing ourselves to, to other folks here. You know, there's a, uh, we have laws in our country, right? There's speed limit laws and stuff. And when you get a speeding ticket, when you go before the judge, he measures you based on how you did based on what the speed limit is. It doesn't matter that everybody else was speeding twice as fast as you were going. There's not a, there's not a reference there to that. It's how do we measure up to what we're supposed to be doing. And that's how this, that's how this thing kind of works. So it's no comparison between the, the two of us. So anyways, um, 
That was it. We'll get started here. Let me open with a word of prayer. Father, thank you for the time that you've set aside here this morning, and uh, we would just ask that you'd be with us as we uh, study your word here. Rightly dividing your word of truth here is what we're up to. That's the theme for this, uh, this lesson, and has been for close to a year now, I think. And so, Lord, we just ask that you'd be with us, guide us, help us, and uh, we'd be careful to give you the thanks and the praise for that. We love you and praise you in Christ's name. All right. Marriage Supper of the Lamb. As we get started up on this, that item in, Marriage Supper of the Lamb, that is one of the things that you should fill out, one of your blanks there that you should be writing down. And then this is the bride, the church, being married, brought to him to be ever with him to Christ, and the celebration in heaven that follows. Revelation 19, 7 through 9 says this, Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him, for the marriage of the Lamb is come, and his wife hath made herself ready. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. And he hath said to me, Write, Blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he saith unto me, These are the true sayings of God. So, as you look into this, there's a whole bunch of different, some, some of these things, it's, it's difficult and has been difficult to actually understand, but there's a lot of commentary on, on this and everything. So we want to we wanna look into that just a little bit. <clears throat> He's talking about this marriage supper of the Lamb and how that relates to us as the church gathering with Christ in our, in our marriage to him. We're going to be with him forever and ever. And so there's a lot of reference to how marriage things went on back in the times that Jesus was on earth. And so these are the references uh, that we have. And here's what a commentator says about this. This was probably the most concise and, and maybe the easiest to understand out of all of these that I looked at. In his vision in Revelation 19, 7 through 10, John saw and heard the heavenly multitudes praising God because the wedding feast of the Lamb... Literally, the marriage supper was about to begin. We all, we all know how we look forward to that kind of stuff, right? We're getting ready to have a big fish fry out here. Arguably, there might be some people more excited about that than they are about being in church here today. And that's a, that's a problem as far as I'm concerned. But you can get excited about those things. There's things that we celebrate. There's things that are righteous celebrations that we look into and we, we have good cause for it. But this was about to begin. The concept of the marriage supper is better understood in light of the wedding customs in the time of Jesus. These wedding customs had three major parts. First, a marriage contract was signed by the parents of the bride and the bridegroom, and the parents of the bridegroom or the bridegroom himself would pay a dowry to the bride or her parents. Now, I never really knew much about that aspect of this thing, but we were at a wedding one time. A very good friend of mine was getting married up in Michigan, and uh, they kind of acted that out. And so you had some idea about how that actually came down at these weddings of, of old time. Um, this began what was called the betrothal period, or what we would call today an engagement period. This period was the one that Joseph and Mary were in when she was found to be with child. And you can read about that in Matthew 1.18 and Luke 2.5. So you have that first step in this marriage. The second step in the process usually occurred much later when the bridegroom 
accompanied by his male friends, went to the house of the bride if he came in the night, and he and his companions would create a torchlight parade throughout the streets. The bride would know in advance that this was going to take place, and so she would be ready with her maidens, and they would all join in the parade to end up at the bridegroom's home. So there's a little ritual that goes on about how these weddings all came down, and these things are referenced or looked at in, in how the marriage supper of the Lamb is doing, things that have happened to us right now, things that are going on in the church age right now, and then ultimately what happens when, when Christ comes back. The custom is the basis of the parable of the ten virgins that you can read about Matthew 25, 1 through 13. We all remember that. That's where these ladies all have their lamps of oil, right? Some of them don't have enough oil, and they try to go to borrow. And they say, go buy your oil yourself like the rest of us have to do. And by the time they get back, the whole thing is over with, and they have missed the boat. All right. The third phase was the marriage supper itself, which might go on for days, as illustrated by the wedding at Cana, in John 2, 1 and 2. What John's vision in Revelation pictures is the wedding feast of the Lamb, Jesus Christ, to his bride, the church, in its third phase. Boy, that's us, folks. We're about to be a bride. We're about to be Jesus' bride. We've talked and talked and talked here over the last few weeks about all this kind of end time stuff in Book of Revelation uh, things and what have you, and I, we just look at it and you say, this thing has got to be getting close. It's got to be getting ready to, to end, and we talked about all the different things, all the different pieces that have to fall into place uh, concerning mostly Israel and about what has to happen, and pretty much all of that stuff has all happened too before we're going to know. So we can know the season, but we can't know exactly what day these things are going to happen. The implication is that the first two phases have already taken place. The first phase was completed on earth when each individual uh, believer placed his or her faith in Christ as Savior. So I'm hopeful in, every, in this room here, we have we got some visitors in here this morning. I hope that everybody in this room has placed their faith and trust in Lord Jesus as, uh, as a way of salvation here. If not, there'll be some preaching about that, I'm sure, here in the next hour. And uh, uh, as this church is uh, kind of obligated to do and does on a regular basis, it's become our, uh, it has uh, been for, what, 78 years now, the passion of this truth to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we're called to do that also. And so the dowry paid by the bridegroom's parent, God the Father, would be the blood of Christ shed on the bride's half. But behalf. The church on earth today then is betrothed to Christ, and like the wise virgins in the parable, all believers should be watching and waiting for the appearance of the bridegroom, and that's the rapture. The second phase symbolizes the rapture of the church when Christ comes to claim his bride and take her to the supper of the and take her to the Father's house. The marriage supper then follows as the third and final step. It is our view that the marriage supper of the Lamb takes place in heaven between the rapture and the second coming during the tribulation on earth. Attending the wedding feast will not only be the church as the bride of Christ, but others as well. The others include the Old Testament saints. They will not have been resurrected yet, but the souls and spirits will be in heaven with us. As the angel told John to write, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Revelation 19.9, the marriage supper of the Lamb is a glorious celebration of all who are in Christ. Remember last week we were talking about there are some people that aren't going to be so happy about this 
People that have rejected the gospel, have heard it time and time again, have sat and preaching. Maybe they weren't regular attenders of church, but maybe somebody gave them a gospel track one time. Maybe somebody just told them about the, the love of Christ. Maybe they were at a, a wedding in a Baptist church, and even at those things, uh, you would see a gospel message generally preached. There would be some mention of knowing Christ as your Savior there. Those people aren't going to be happy when this comes because they're going to see clearly that they have missed the boat. Every knee will bow, every tongue confess, Jesus Christ is Lord. And we talked about that last, uh, last week here. So, Anyways, um, have you all ever heard of a, a humorist, a Christian humorist? I don't know if the guy was actually a Christian or not, but he, he did make a lot of fun of the Baptist and everything, so you kind of feel like maybe he had some thing. But uh, David Gardner, anybody ever heard of him? All right. Well, our lesson plan here has... He's actually quite funny. He has some very interesting and funny stories. But uh, this brother, brother David here, he says, you know we're Baptists because we get more excited about the supper than the actual wedding. <laughs> right? We're more excited about the supper than the, than the wedding here. Just some brother David humor. That's right in the lesson plan here. So I thought I'd, I'd mention that. All right. Anybody have any questions, comments, concerns about anything that we've talked about so far or anything I've read? No? All right. That's good because I probably don't know the answer to it. Anyway, just, just as always, I wouldn't have the, the right answer for it. Anyway, the next thing here, the revelation of Christ. This is item O on your handout there, revelation of Christ. That's one of your fill-in-the-blanks there. Also, and commonly referred to as the second coming of Christ. This is different than the rapture when Christ comes in the clouds for the saved. He comes to rule and reign upon his revelation. In our faith here, we're premillennial in our view of the second coming of Christ, meaning we believe Christ returned before the thousand years of his rulership begins. Now, here was kind of an interesting thing that I ran across. It's in the lesson plan, but then I did do a little bit of research on it just because I, it piqued my curiosity. It says here, it's not debated much nowadays, but... Back in the day, it used to be a hot topic who, for, for those who believed that either World War I or World War II was actually the tribulation period, that that's what we were, that's what we were living for, and, and that we're in the millennium following these wars. Now, apparently they don't talk about that very much. Those, those wars were, were terrible, and I can imagine that if somebody was around and they had the, they had the, the idea that this was what it was going to be like on this earth during that time, that you could easily come up, conjure up in your mind that, wow, this might really be the tribulation period. This is pretty, this is pretty bad. Uh, all, kinds of different, all kinds of different things here about the First World War and the Second World War that I would have thought would have been a little bit more accurate in what they print out there. But it would appear like in the First World War, there were, there were 20, 20 million people died. In that, in that war. That war was so bad that they actually ended up with uh, making a whole bunch of rules about how wars are supposed to get fought. There's not allowed to be any chemical warfare now. There's certain things that you're not allowed to do, certain ways that you treat prisoners. Most of those things were generally followed pretty closely during the Second World War, but there were some transgressions of those. Um, the uh, little bit of interesting history about those wars, if you look into it, 
Everybody always thinks the Germans were the really bad guys during the Second World War, but the Germans didn't hold a candle to how the Japanese treated people. And when there were, when there were transgression made, it was most, mostly against Japan. They're the ones that, that had more problems with how to follow the rule book than, than, than anybody had. But anyways, um, in, in that war, they say there were about 38 million people died for a, for a and, and in all kinds of different ones that were hurt and maimed and, and just all kinds of tragic things. So between the two of them, uh, different places on the internet have different things about this, but a total 75 to 80 million people died in those two wars. Well, we talked a little bit about the Battle of Armageddon. We talked about the tribulation period. And these things, these numbers pale in comparison to anything that's going to go on during those, those wars. As a matter of fact, um, I didn't get a, I, with, with this screen up here, I have to turn in a week ahead of time whatever I want to, to show up on that screen. I, I didn't know that, even though I was told that one time, I kind of forgot about it. But um, Esther Bilby, I think it was Esther, either Esther or Jeff, I can't remember. Somebody sent Patty and I a picture of that Megiddo, the, the valley where that, where that battle is gonna take place. That was a picture of you and Esther out there on that thing, and then Kyle standing there overlooking this valley. And I'll tell you what, it looks like you're kind of up in an airplane overlooking this thing, and it's as far out as the eye can see. And that's the valley they said that the blood is going to run about four feet deep out there. There's going to be so many bodies out. So this is, it's going to be a mess when this Battle of Armageddon takes place. So tribulation period, Battle of Armageddon, two different things, but in either case, both of those things are probably going to be a lot worse than either one of these wars. So this kind of dispels any notion that those things were the tribulation period. Then you have the rapture before revelation, translation before tribulation. And this is a little story. I've never ever even heard of this guy. And this might be one of these things where you, you know, somebody would look at me and go, you've been saved for how long and you've never heard of Oliver B. Green? Have any of y'all ever heard of this fella? Have you ever, uh, Joe, have you ever heard of Oliver Green? Yeah, when I seen it, and you've seen, so I seen a picture of him out there because I looked up this, this story that he wrote. I seen a picture of him there, and I thought, yeah, I know who that, I've seen that picture of that guy, but I didn't have any idea who, who he was. And um, so he's a, he's a real big, uh, he wrote this thing about, the, about the, uh, us not being here during the tribulation period here. So, in this, it, uh, it talks about how he is just totally convinced that we have the right idea here in our pre-trib look at this thing. So here, here's what he wrote on this thing. And this is actually, a, a, some other guy wrote this article but referenced his thing and he was very careful to say, look, I, I wrote this down exactly the way Oliver Green had it in his book. I never did find the book. I, I never could find out where this actually came from, but this was just a thing that he had written. Um, this essay first appeared on the end time of uh, July 10th of 2014 was when it came out, but it was written long before that. Oliver B. Green published a wonderful verse-by-verse -verse exposition of Daniel in 1964. So I was two years old when this fella wrote this uh, thing. I've enjoyed reading it because the book of Daniel is so hard for me to interpret, and I'll, I'll second that. There's no question about it. I was struck by Mr. Green's certainty and fervency regarding the pre-tribulation rapture. A pre-trib rapture is biblically correct. 
Now, that's what our church believes. That's what our lesson here believes and everything, and that's certainly what I believe, and I think that this thing lines up with the Bible and how it's, and how it's supposed to work. The rapture itself has been in the Bible all along, even though that word doesn't appear in there, but we know about it. The rapture itself has been in the Bible all along, notwithstanding assertions that it was, made, that it was a made-up doctrine from the 1800s. Now, I wasn't aware of that. I didn't know that in the 1800s somebody came around and started just asserting that this thing was just some, this is what this was all going to do. And maybe that's the first time that anybody called it a rapture or something. I'm just not sure about that. I, hadn't, I wasn't able to run across it. And the rapture's timing happening prior to the tribulation has always been biblically evident too. It was only lately that man began to shy away from the clear teaching of this and muddy the waters to the extent that people now are hesitant to be dogmatic about it. So much so that they think that they are being pious to show uncertainty. That's an interesting way that he wrote that there. I've run across people like that where they think they're more spiritual than other people because they're uncertain about something in the Bible. You know, there's, God's not the author of confusion. There, there's not anything in here that's supposed to be uncertain to us. There's an eventuality with it where it will become, will become clear with careful prayer before reading and guidance from the Holy Spirit. And like we've mentioned all along, these things, they, they come, become evident to different people at different times as you go through these things. So um, I hope I don't look pious because I don't know most of this stuff. I mean, there's, you go through and you just keep learning it. That's what we're doing. We're rightly dividing the word of truth, being pious to show. Look at Mr. Green's statement on the subject. I kept, this, I kept his exact emphasis. The great tribulation has nothing to do with the church. The church will not enter or go through any part of that terrible time. Any preacher or teacher who suggests that the bride of Christ will be subjected to any part of the reign of the Antichrist is definitely wrongly dividing the word of truth. God pity the preacher who will accuse Jesus of allowing the Antichrist to reign over his bride and the church is the bride of Christ. We have the blessed promise, because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I will also keep thee from the hour of temptation, which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell on the earth. Revelation 3.10. In the writings of Paul, we are promised, for God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. So we have a promise there that we're not going to have to go through any of this tribulation stuff. We're, we're out of here. We're, we're done with this thing. When that happens, you, you don't know. But we get, we get taken up in the clouds with the Lord Jesus. We get to meet him. We get to do all of that stuff long before any of this tribulation period starts up. We mentioned the other day that in the tribulation period, there's the first three and a half years of that that goes on that's just kind of on its own schedule. It just things happen, things do but then there's appointed times that happen in the last part of it where God is in control, how the whole thing comes down, and this is when this is going to happen, this is going to happen, this is going to happen, and it's going to be right along God's timetable. Prophesied, it looked into it, and these sorts of things, and there won't be changing that timetable. There, there might be people that are going to be praying to get in line with the timetable, and we'll be, we'll be looking how to, how to figure that out. We mentioned that there will be people that will get saved during this period also. The Great Tribulation has to do with the nation of Israel, not with the church. 
if the church were to enter or go through any part of the tribulation, believers would be com commanded to watch for the Antichrist, not for the Christ. We would be commanded to, to watch for the great tribulation, not to wait for God's Son from heaven. And that's in 1 Thessalonians 1.10. So when you start looking at how this, how this whole thing is going to come down, you've got, uh, you've got a lot of different aspects, a lot of different parts of the puzzle all have to come together on a certain, on a certain time frame. You can know the season, but not the actual hour. And as that gets, that gets closer, we have some things that we as Christians ought to, ought to be doing a little bit better. One of the things is, not to say that some of us aren't, aren't doing it a lot already, but one of the things is telling more and more people about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Letting folks know what they're, what they're in for here, what's going to be happening. And then uh, being together in church more often. Says, assemble not to, you know, don't forsake assembling yourself together as the manner of some is. And then it goes on, even as the time goes closer, we should be doing that more and more often. We got a great church for that, man. This place is just, uh, we were mentioning the other day there, uh, Brother Tim's, that, that this church has just got a unity to it here. It, it's got this, it's got a unity. It's got people that are faithful. It's got people that pray for one another in this sort of thing. And so we would, we would hope that that adhesion would stay there with the, with the counsel of the Holy Spirit and the firmness of God's hand on this place, that it would, it would be here no matter what happens, you know. And I, and I think we can look forward to that. So anyway, 2 Timothy 4.1.5, he says here, I charge thee therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering doctrine. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lust shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears, and they shall turn away from their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables. But watch thou in all things, enduring afflictions. Do the work of an evangelist, make a, a full proof of thy ministry." 2 Timothy 4, 1 through 5. All right. So um, as things get closer and closer, people start to look for all kinds of different avenues to either justify how they've lived their life, justify that they have rejected the gospel of Jesus Christ, and to try to figure out how in the world they're going to get out of the mess that's at hand. It's our job as Christians... Right here, just like he tells t uh, Timothy, look, you need, to be, you need to be preaching the gospel. You need to be telling people about things. You need to live your life so that, uh, that your light shines before men. I told the story last week. We were talking about those, that, that woman that came into the church that said she's pretty certain she's not a Christian. And then she had four women in that church that ministered to her, prayed with her, let their, let their life shine before this woman. And she ended up getting saved because of a testimony of four women in that church. It's a beautiful story, and that's how we should be, that's how we should be doing things here. This um, uh, Matthew Henry, he talks, about this, he talks about this way. He says, people will turn away from the truth. They will grow weary of the plain gospel of Christ. They will be greedy of fables and take pleasure in them. So... We don't want to ever get, we, we hear about the gospel of Christ 
every time the doors of this church are open. And every time you listen to preaching on the radio, if you got the right station on there, you're going to hear about the gospel of Jesus Christ. He sh shed his blood on the cross, died for your sins, rose, rose from the dead for you. All that, all you got to do is by faith believe that that happened and you can become a born-again Christian. You can be saved. We don't ever want to get tired of hearing that same story over and over and over and over again. Now, there are, there are different uh, preachers and evangelists that have different avenues and different styles that they teach these things with, but the message should always be very clear about what the, what the gospel actually is here. So we don't want people to have itching ears. We want to have people that are interested in hearing the truth about the, uh, the gospel of Jesus. Um, people do so when they will not endure that preaching, which is searching, plain, and to purpose, and to the purpose. Those who love souls, but those who love souls must be ever watchful, must venture and bear all the painful effects of their faithfulness, and take all opportunities of making known the pure gospel. All right, so how does that apply? How does that right there apply to our lives? Well, we're out there rubbing elbows with the world, right? We live in this world. We have our jobs that we go to. We have our families that we go to. We have restaurants we go into and all this sort of thing. So what this is saying is it's saying get out of your comfort zone a little bit and, and tell, people about, uh, tell people about Jesus and let them know what he's, what he, how much he loves him and all that kind of stuff. I'd mention to you all, I've got that, I've got that little track that I, I hand out. It's a little cartoon book and everything titled A Love Story. And it is just page after page after page of who does this and this and this for you? Jesus does it. Who loves you so much that he died on a cross? Jesus did. Who does this? Who does this? Every answer to every question on every, on every one of those pages is that Jesus did it. I got them. I, I actually hand those things out around Bridgeport now, and people will show me. Yeah, I, I've already got one of these. <laughs> you, you've been through. I've got them things circulating all over the place. And it's just you're trying to get the, the gospel of Christ out. That's what, we, that's what we want. And so that's kind of what we're commissioned to do here. Anyway, anybody have any questions, comments, concerns about any of that stuff that we just, uh, we just talked about? All right. Anybody have any additions to that? Tell me how wrong I am about this, or tell me how wrong the commentators are about it, because there's things here that you just don't, uh, it's very difficult in some cases to understand what's, what's going on here. So anyways, um, all right. We'll press on with the, with the uh, next part of this here then. The next, um, the next thing, and somehow or another, I'm not real sure about why this is, but the next thing that we have here that you're going to fill out is item T, Satan bound. So there's that little section there, Satan bound, and we're going to talk about that here for just a second. The only thing that I could figure out about why that's out of order here because we were just on O, L-M-N-O, should go to P, but it actually goes to T. But if you remember back a few weeks ago when we were starting this, I had mentioned that this little timeline that we have, the, the little thing that shows where all these different things happen, uh, Satan is bound at letter T in this thing, and maybe that's just because of where it sits on the timeline that, that pastor, when he wrote this, 
this lesson plan put it there like that. I meant to ask him about that yesterday, but I, I, it just totally slipped my mind. Anyhow, Satan is currently the prince of the power of the air and is upon the earth trying to disrupt the purposes of God. And um, boy, he can, he, can certainly, he can certainly do that. There's no question about it. He's got all kinds of little things that he does. He uses the media, he uses Hollywood, he uses the TV set, the radio, the billboards, the, everything that he can do, including some people that are walking around, might try to get into these churches. We talked about that, being alert, watching out for, for different folks that come into the church occasionally, that they might be there just strictly to disrupt what's going on. So Satan uses these different, these different things. After the battle of Armageddon, Satan will be bound and cast into hell for a thousand years, awaiting his final judgment. All right. Satan's binding time will be concurrent with the millennial reign of Christ. So all during the thousand years that Christ is reigning on earth, uh, Satan will be down there waiting to see what's going to happen with him, even though I think he already knows what's going to happen to him. That's why he's so adamant about getting things done the way he wants them done on this earth right now because he wants to take as many people along with him as he can. Anybody coming to Christ um, causes time for rejoicing in heaven, and I'm sure it causes time for remorseful ambitions to, to show up down there with, uh, you know, with Satan and his ilk. Anyway, Revelation 20, 1 through 3 says this, And I saw an angel come down from heaven, having the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil and Satan, and bound him a thousand years and cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal upon him that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years should be fulfilled. And after that, he must be loosed a little season. So he must be loosed a little season. Boy, that is, uh, that's an interesting thing there. I wrote a little note to myself, Satan must be loosed. Why is that? Why does he have to get loosed? Well, I spent probably an hour and a half or two hours looking into the answer to that question, and here's what I, here's what I found out. Most of the guys say, we don't really know why that's going to happen, but there's some, there's some speculation about it. And what this particular guy writes here is he writes down that, uh, that we can look at other things that we do know, certainties that we have about the Bible and how it's written and what they're talking about. And from that, we can kind of make a conclusion about why he has to do that. And so um, I have a guy that I'm doing our discipleship program right now. He's asked me three or four times, about that. Why would God go through all this trouble, have all this set up, and then at the end of this thousand years, why would he turn Satan loose again to, to uh, you know, wreak havoc on the earth and to try to get people to get on, you know, what, whatever, whatever he's trying to do here in that. And so I ran across a, a thing here that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kind of read through, but I'll probably do a little bit of paraphrasing because it, it was a pretty lengthy thing. And it starts off right off the bat. It starts off saying that we, we really don't know the answer to this. There's some things that we're only going to know the answer to when we get on the other side, when we come to glory that we might know. And then 
I'm convinced, and, and I'm, I'm not sure if there would be disagreement with this in the room or not, but I think even when we get to heaven, there's still going to be things that we're not going to be privileged to know. Uh, I don't think we're necessarily going to know all the answers when we get to heaven. There may still be a whole bunch of, uh, there may still be a whole bunch of things that, are, that we have a question about, but we're not going to be interested in the answers anymore because we're going to be in heaven. We're going to be at the end of this run, and so that's that's where, we'll, that's where we'll be at. We'll spend our time worshiping. We'll be spending time in his presence. We'll be time spending time there uh, basking in his glory and, and, and being with him. So Revelation 20, uh, 7 through 10, which we just read some of that there, it talks about when the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations of the four corners of the earth. Gog and Magog. We talked about what all that was here a couple of weeks ago. Gog and Magog, to, to gather them for battle. In number, they are like the sand on the seashore. They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them, and the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophets had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. As we read these verses, we wonder, why will God release Satan at the end of the millennial reign of Jesus Christ? First, we must admit that there are some biblical questions which we cannot answer this side of glory because God has chosen to reserve some mysteries to himself. Deuteronomy 29, 29 and Romans 11, 33 through 36 um, mention something about that aspect of this. Yet, as believers, even if we cannot always understand something about God's word, his will or his ways, we can be sure that he remains ever faithful, true, and trustworthy. And in light of that, our job remains to obey what we do understand as quickly, fully, and as well as we are able to. So don't let not understanding all of this stuff be an excuse for not even bothering with the stuff that you do understand. That's what it kind of boils down to here. Um, God reveals things to us in different times. I've mentioned over and over. I'll read the same scripture 20 different times, 20 different passages, 20 different studies, and then finally one day, boom, I'll be like, I get, I get that now. I totally understand what this is talking about, and here's how I need to apply that in my life. Or maybe I realize the error of my ways at that point, which is usually the case with me. It's usually, yeah, I've been really messing that up bad, so uh, maybe I need to change my, my ways there just a little bit. Even if we might not be able to answer why God releases Satan, we can suggest some possible reasons and motivations based on an understanding of the entirety of the Word of God. At the beginning of the millennium, only believers will be alive. Revelation 19, 17 through 21, some who live through the tribulation period and some who come back with the Lord at his second coming. It will be a time of peace, unparalleled in history. This is spoken of in Isaiah 2, 4 and Micah 4, 3. Jesus will be ruling on the throne of David, imposing a benevolent theocracy on all of his creation. Jesus will ensure that everyone has every need fulfilled while not tolerating the sin so prevalent in today's society. Psalm 2, 7 through 12 talks about this. And Revelation 2, 26 through 29, 12, 5, 19, 11, and, or 19, 11 through 16. 
We can only imagine such a time of heaven on earth. The believers who live through the tribulation will be mortal. They will live and repopulate the earth during the millennial kingdom. Without the devastation of sin taking its toll, we can imagine the population increase during the millennium will be enormous, almost incomprehensible. All those who are born during the millennium will enjoy the benefits and blessings of Christ's reign on earth, but they will still be born with a sin nature and they will still have to freely repent and believe the gospel, personally choosing Christ as Savior and Lord. Yet at the end of the millennial reign, Satan is loosed and is able to deceive a vast multitude to follow him in one final rebellion against the Lord of glory and his saints. It seems that the further humanity gets from the end of the tribulation and the start of the millennium, the more they will take for granted how good they have it. And some may even harbor doubts about the goodness of God. Even though the number who rebel with Satan are said to be as the sand of the sea, Revelation 27, they may still be a minority compared to the, to the number who do not rebel. It will still be a large number of souls who join Satan. Undoubtedly, one of the primary reasons God gives us his picture of what will happen in the time to demonstrate the deep-seated sin nature inherent in all of humanity. Jeremiah 17, 9 uh, speaks of that. Additionally, God is trying to tell us something about his nature is displayed during the millennium. His grace and goodness will be on display continually. So there are already people that doubt the, that doubt the, the genuine sincerity of God. You'll hear people when you talk to them and you witness to them about different things, they'll say, well, if God is so good, why does he let, and then there's a whole litany of different things that go on, bad things that have gone on in people's life. Why does he let these things happen? Well, there's answers for those, there's answers for those questions if the person that you're talking to will allow you enough time to divulge it and through the scriptures show them why there's different things that happen on this earth as God, uh, as God goes through and, and lets this time of existence on earth play out. The, the very short answer, sin entered into the world. That's why we have all these problems that we have and everything. And that started with Adam and Eve, right? So you go on to these things and, and, and then there'll still be some discussion about how, you know, how to go about dealing with people that have that. But it's nothing, this is nothing new. People, I've got, a, I've got a brother of mine that basically just hates God and kind of if there really is a God, he might say something along these lines that I don't want anything to do with a God that's like that. That is a really, really sad uh, thing as far as I'm concerned. His grace and goodness will be on display continually, but at the end of the thousand years, he will have zero tolerance for re rebellion, none whatsoever. When it happens, he will show no mercy and offer no second chances. At that time, he will be quick to judge, and the final rebellion of Satan and sinful men will be over in a flash of fire. After this, the final judgment of the dead takes place, the great white throne judgment, Revelation 20, 11 through 15 speaks to this. Eternity can thus begin with every aspect of sin gone for all time. Finally, God is trying to reinforce some very important lessons concerning Satan himself, especially for believers. First, that he has been and always will be the enemy of humanity. As God has fixed his love on us, Satan has for us a special hatred. 
Ever since Satan's fall, Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, he has been the adversary of believers and he is aptly described as the ultimate deceiver of mankind. John 8, 44, 1 John 2, 22. And he can give a promise and he can give or promise man is, all he can give or promise man is death and destruction, John 10, 10. Satan is also shown here to be truly defeated foe and his ultimate doom is powerless before him. 2 Corinthians 12, 17. All this should encourage believers today to, God, to take God at his word concerning our position in Christ with respect to the devil. That talk, that's spoken of in Matthew 4, 11, or 4, 1 through 11, and Luke 4, 1 through 13, 1 Corinthians 10, 13, 2, uh, Corinthians, or 2 Corinthians 4, 1 through 7, and there's a whole bunch of other stuff, especially as we remember this grand truth. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Boy, isn't that a, isn't that a great thing? You, you sit here and you look at this and you go, how in the world can I tolerate dealing with the things that come up in my life, the temptations, the sins that I have, the things that I go through, the uh, way that I treat people, the way that I look at stuff, the way, all these different things. Rely on the love and the gracefulness of Christ. Rely on the Holy Spirit that's in you to drive you away from these things. If you, if you put him off, the devil will flee away from you. He'll get away from you. You, you, have, to, you have to pay attention to, to the guiding of the Holy Spirit. All righty. Anybody have any questions, comments, concerns? Linda, Miss Linda. Say that one more time. Oh, yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. That, uh, that is true. There's things, there's things going on on that part of this ball that we live on, right, that are just, it's just amazing. You sit here and watch it, but it's not surprising. It's all prophesied. We, we kind of know what's, we kind of see it coming. I tell people all the time, if you want to know what tomorrow's headlines are, read the book of Revelation. <laughs> it'll, it'll tell you what you're going to see in the newspaper here in the next week or so. And what have you. So pray for Israel. This is true. All right. Anybody else got anything? All right. That's it. We're done for the day here. I think the second bell just rang. Did it or not? Yep. Anyway, Father, thank you for the time that you've given us here. We'd ask that you be with Brother Tim's here now as he brings us the message, Lord. Use him mightily through, through him. Uh, preach a message to us, uh, Father. Help us to apply it to our lives. Help us to have a heart and a mind that open to it. Be with Brother Tim's as he preaches, give him liberty as he stands at the pulpit here this morning. We love you, praise you, and thank you in Christ's name. Amen.